Fualsha, 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 Akharja Gale, and welcome to episode 90 of the Rebel Matters podcast. This is an extra special edition of the show because it is a part of the programme for the very first Frederick Douglass Week, which is running between the 8th to the 14th of February. And today's guest on the show is Lawrence Fenton, who has written two books about Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass in Ireland, The Black O'Connell, and I Was Transformed, Frederick Douglass, an American Slave in Victorian Britain. Before we go any further, I need to say a special thank you to Lawrence because we had to re-record this episode on account of a technical problem during the first attempt. So what you're going to hear now is a much higher quality uh, second version of the episode with Lawrence. Whether or not you've heard of Frederick Douglass before, this episode is going to be a real treat. The first time that I started to learn about Frederick Douglass was about five or six years ago when I got a copy of his book, My Bondage and My Freedom, and it really had a big impact on me. So much so that the bookmarks that we give out as part of the Ackley Book Club have got a Frederick Douglass quote written on them. Once you learn to read, you will forever be free. And we have a poster of Frederick Douglass hanging up in the Ackley training facility as well. It's a massive privilege for myself and for Vicky and for the Rebel Matters podcast in general to be a part of the programme for the very first Frederick Douglass week. I really enjoyed speaking to Lawrence and learning more about Frederick Douglass during this episode. And you can find out more about Douglass week by going to Douglas in Cork.com, D O U G L A S S I N C U R K.com. In other news, if you've been listening to the podcast, then you've probably heard me mentioning these special edition prints that we had on the way, and we just took delivery of 50 limited edition prints printed by Dam Fine Print in Dublin of the artwork that we commissioned Jowl 666 or Emmett Walsh to do for us. And the prints are an iconic image of Father Des Wilson, who was our guest on episode 27, but more importantly, someone who gave his life in service to the people of West Belfast through some of the darkest times that we have seen on this island. And the print has a lovely quote from Father Des on it, taken from the episode that we recorded together way back in episode number 27 the quote says the revolution came when the people stopped asking to be properly governed and started demanding the right to govern themselves you can check the print out if you go to our instagram account rebel underscore matters and you'll see it we think that it is absolutely class and we started sending them out this week to some of our patrons as a small token of our appreciation for the support that we get from our patrons and of course the Rebel Matters podcast is completely funded by our supporters on Patreon and we are very grateful for all of that support. We've been doing a little bit of work on the various tiers of support on over on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters is our page if you want to find out more but there's now five tiers of support starting from three euros a month so if you have been considering becoming a supporter of the show this would be a very good time to do it and we would love to have you on board the support that we get on patreon literally keeps the rebel matters 
show on the road. So if you like what we're doing and you want to help us to be able to keep doing that, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters. And if you're not in a position to become a patron of the show right now, then that's sweet as well. We really appreciate all of the shares that the show gets on social media and love hearing from the listeners of the show. So get in touch if you have any comments or feedback or uh, just want to say hello. The best way to do it is through Instagram. As I was saying, our Instagram page is rebel underscore matters. Anyway, let's get stuck into episode number 90 of the Rebel Matters podcast with Lawrence Fenton. Buenas soltas. Thanks very much for joining me for the podcast, Lawrence. Um, we're going to be talking about Frederick Douglass. If someone has never heard of Frederick Douglass, what are the basic pieces of information that they should know? He was a he was born a slave in Maryland in 1818, and he escaped north to freedom at the age of 20. He very quickly became a member and a leading member of the American Anti-Slavery Society, which was the leading abolitionist society in America at the time. He rose to prominence just through to the, um, his stature as a speaker, as a public speaker. Um, he became so well known, uh, people started to kind of question him, doubt him, say he'd never been a slave. He was just too eloquent, too impressive. Um, he dressed elegantly. He had no hint of the plantation stooge in his demeanor aspect. Uh, people said he'd never been south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, to refute these allegations, questions that were growing around him, he decided to write his autobiography. Um, <clears throat> what made this important? particularly important is that when he had escaped North, he had changed his name. So he was born Frederick Bailey. He only took the name Douglas when he escaped North. In his autobiography, just to you know, prove all the doubters wrong, he laid it all out. He laid out his real name, where he was born, and his, the names of all his different masters. And um, so that the book got a lot of attention, made him a household name, not just across America, but across the world. It wasn't the first slave narrative to be written, but it was just, it was just the best, the most hard-hitting, the most powerful. But because he had identified himself, it now meant that he was easily tracked down because the newspapers in the North would have been full of, you know, Frederick Douglass is speaking at Lynn, Massachusetts on the 8th at 7 o'clock in this hall. So there was worries and rumors that he might be uh, recaptured and taken back down south by his owners. And so that was when it was decided that he needed to get out of America for a while and was sent across the Atlantic on a speaking tour, an anti-slavery speaking tour. To put it into context, in that time, slaves would have just been seen like pieces of property, the way that we, ha we all have a mobile phone, that they were just things that belonged to their masters. Yeah, 
when you see the um, say if someone dies and their property is being put up, uh, the estate is being put up for sale. Uh, there's you know slaves are listed beside cupboards and blankets and books, um, and that's that's all that they were seen as you know piece of land. Someone's got a piece of land. They got a nice library and they got twenty seven negroes in prime condition, and they've got um, you know some really nice chairs. And they would have just been passed along, say, to in, in a will or something like that. They would have just been. Yeah, it could, it could have been in a will. Um, Douglas was an interesting one. So his first master owner and the man who was probably his father uh, died when he was maybe 10 or 12. And so Douglas, there was a group of around 30 slaves, all kind of the largely the same family. And they were split then between a couple of, 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 uh, of children, kind of two brothers and a sister. And Douglas was given to, was bequeathed to the sister and um his like his siblings then were sent somewhere else and other siblings and aunts and cousins were sent somewhere else so yeah just um you know divvied up and spread around and is it possible to say like at what year that frederick douglas's family were brought to america it's 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 probably is um it's it's you can't be exact but the the name Bailey was in that area. That it's it's if you look at the map of Maryland, there's like a there's the Chesapeake Bay. There's most Maryland is on one side, and there's the Chesapeake Bay, and then there's a strip. It's called the Eastern Shore, and so the name Bailey had been there for a hundred, hundred and twenty years or so. And they think you know, like that's kind of how it's been um, taken back. So the, the his family, wider his um, antecedents were in that chunk of maryland for you know guts of a hundred years or so so talking early 1700s late 1600s yeah. something like that yeah, there yeah, 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 what yeah. was it, what was his life like in the early years as a slave uh, his early years were relatively okay um he was after his mother harriet bailey gave birth to him she was sent back to the fields to work so how they worked it out in in his particular instance was the grandmother betsy she would mind all the grandchildren well, her, where after her daughters who had given birth were sent back to, to work in the fields. So Frederick grew up with his grandmother in a kind of a wooden shack in, 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 near, near a creek. Um, and although, yeah, he, would have been, he wouldn't have had much food, but he had a lot of freedom. He's all, he always um, recalls that time quite well in his, in his writings, just a young child running around, jumping in the creek, getting muddy. Uh, things changed when he was six. This stage, then he was able to maybe do some domestic chores, just bits and pieces of housework. So his grandmother Betsy took him to a big estate called Y House. Now Y House belonged to a established political family called the Lloyd family, and Frederick's father was an overseer for this family. So Frederick was sent to live with, or Frederick's owner um, slash father was an overseer. So Frederick was sent to live with him. And he would have then met some of his other siblings and cousins who had been sent earlier. Um, that's, it's when he's on this big estate that he gets his first real sense, feel of what slavery is, what it means. He sees the conditions that the, most of the Deloitte the slaves live in. He sees the overseers shoot, whip, attack, maim multiple slaves. He sees his own cousin. Uh, you know, her hands are taken. 
put up on a on 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 a nail in the kitchen, and his owner uh, rips off her. Her, her her clothes and like and whips her back. Well, he's six or seven and he's just cowering underneath a table or a cupboard. So um, it all very quickly just comes over him and um, yeah, he's you know traumatized by that. You know the way that uh, you've kind of referred to his owner stroke father. So it, it would have been quite common practice at the time for slave owners to rip some of their. The, the females that they had on their plantation and then they would have children. So is that, is that kind of what you're talking about, the way that Frederick Douglass came yeah, to be born? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's, so, it's, it's, it's not 100% gar- you know, guaranteed, but that's, it's, it's kind of t- taken as, you know, that's, 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 um, that's how it was for him. And so, you know, when he got moved into this other house, would he have been in there with people who were his cousins or siblings or half-siblings and he might not necessarily have known or was just being kind of like, Kind of trying to put the pieces together, or whatever. He would have. He would have um, been aware of the other um, slave siblings and cousins. They would have. Um, you know, sometimes that they might have been in his grandmother's house for a few years. Maybe they left when they were six, and he was maybe still two or three. And it was kind of a constant kind of. You know, you're with Betsy in the grandmother for a few years, and then you move on. So he would have seen his siblings maybe when he was two and three. Then they left, and then by the time he's six and they're nine, he's kind of catching up and meeting them again. Um, but what's interesting here is that. His, the owner's white children were there as well. These they were adult children, and the owner's daughter Lucretia Ald was around twenty twenty one when Frederick arrived, and so it's hard to know that they form a bond because she kind of you know knew that in some way shape form they were half siblings. But in whatever for whatever way whatever reason those two formed a little bond. Um, Frederick would, he had a lovely voice, he would sing songs and she would give him extra food, which was, um, you know, very uh, important because he had to scrap, he had to literally, you know, fight on the floor for food with his, um, with his siblings and cousins sometimes. So that little connection helped in that way. And it helped in another way in that this lady, Lucretia Ald, when Frederick was about to be put into the fields to work another couple of years later, she instead convinced her father to allow Frederick go across the Chesapeake Bay to live in Baltimore with her, with her husband's brother. So basically there he would be a companion for a child in a house. He was just going to be kind of a, a companion for a, a young white boy, in, white, white boy in a house in Baltimore. So, uh, but it's still within the broader family um, network. That thing that you were describing there, the way that he would maybe have spent a bit of time with his cousins or siblings in the early years, and then they would just disappear and then maybe meet up again. It really, that really kind of highlights how people were seen as just these movable commodities, just mm-hmm. to go and do the job, like wherever they, their owner felt that they were needed or whatever. Did that uh, relationship that he had with his potential, his, his half sister, um, in, impact? how he became literate because that seems to have played a massive part in his life the whole way through. It did. It did. Because when he went to this house in Baltimore, so he was living with Lucretia's uh, brother-in-law and his wife, and they had never owned slaves before this family. Um, so the, 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 the husband in that, in that house would have you know, shared all the, um, hatreds of the time but um he didn't actually own slaves and neither and his wife had come from a family that had never owned slaves so she again she didn't treat him as well as she treated her own son but she wasn't as instinctually filled with hatred she treated frederick relatively kindly and at one point 
she started to teach him how to <clears throat> how to read. Um, this was actually against the law in basically every southern state. Um, but um, so after a little while, the husband realized this, found this out, and you know stopped her doing it. But it was too late. The, the window had been opened in Frederick's mind. He had enough information to get going, and he never let go. He would find scraps of paper on the floor and take them home and read them in secret up in a room. He would look at the the Boynton house. He would look at his schoolworks, kind of or his school books later on in the day. So for a couple of years, he was just this kind of furtive, secretive reader, slowly piecing it all together. Um, also. In Baltimore, there was a bit more freedom than in, than in the plantation. So sometimes he'd be out in the streets, maybe going to get water. And you know, he'd hang, hang out a bit. And he'd actually have friendships with younger white boys. This is when they're all around kind of you know, 10, 11, 12. Um, the skin color divide wasn't so pressing then. You know, they, 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 they made friends black and white. And he would bring biscuits from the house and get the white children to help him learn to read and write. And so he very quickly becomes the exception to the rule he very quickly starts um like almost orating on street corners he'd you know he'd read stuff memorize it and like and say on the street so he's you know he's already at the age of 11 12 becoming a tinker a leader a you know uh, um, an orator he became literate and he started doing these orations on the street corners this was in maryland was it yeah, Baltimore, Maryland. So then, did he get sent back then to a plantation and that's where he eventually made a break for it? Uh, no, he spent his teenage years moving from one side of Maryland to the other, basically at the whim of his owner and the relationship between the owner and the brother in Baltimore. And sometimes they fell out and so Frederick was taken back. Sometimes they were on good terms again and Frederick went back to Baltimore. He spent a good chunk of maybe from 12 to 16 on the rural eastern shore of Baltimore. And um, that's when he was put out. He was kind of hired out to other farmers. And that's where he had the most severe beatings of his life. Um, they're the, you know, kind of what is always called the kind of the darkest periods of his life. Um, he did try to make an escape uh, for, 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 from there at one point. And again, even though he was 16 or so, and a group of four or five of them were going to try to make the escape, they were all older. Frederick was clearly seen and known as the leader. Um, but one, somebody, somebody gave them up. And so even before they could make the escape effort, they were rounded up and taken to prison. So he spent a few nights in jail. And, you know, his life was in the balance. Um, but for whatever reason, his owner decided to, you know, bring him back in and send him back to Baltimore. He spoke loudly about, you know, like, I'm going to send Frederick down south. I'm going to sell him to the, to the deep south. Um, but he didn't. He sent it back to Baltimore. And I don't know this for, for for sure, but my sense is that his, the owner was Lucretia All's um, husband. Now, Lucretia All had died, but because she had had such a connection with Frederick, I think the owner kind of remembered that connection that his deceased wife had had with Frederick. And so I think he found it hard to, you know, do to, to, to make that final step and sell him south. So um, that's why he sent him back to Baltimore. So was he kind of like a... talking the big talk just to get him out of jail? And then... Exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. And then, then subtly, um, quietly sending him across to Baltimore. And so Frederick had his last couple of years in Baltimore as a kind of a late teenager. And that's when 
he gets involved in the underground railroad and things like that. And that's when, you know, the real possibility begins to escape. And eventually, at the age of 20, he does make his escape north. What was the Underground Railroad? The Underground Railroad was a collection, connection of people who aided and abetted the freeing of slaves, the, the, um, you know, bringing slaves across various borders, um, say, having safe houses between, say, the Mason-Dixon line, then a series of safe houses up along the northern states up until, say, you get to Canada and um, yeah, <clears throat> places like that. So was it the conventional... Uh, trains except people who were working on them were kind of sneaking people into the trains or whatever? no 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 it wasn't that it wasn't that conventional trains no it was just um just a just a, just a name given it was just a secret society really um to 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 help to help slaves escape oh so it's actually not got connected with trains specifically not not, not specifically i'm sure trains would have helped some and frederick escaped on the train but you know you, you were also part of the underground railroad if you help someone get through a swamp at the right uh, at the right time you see, before he was able to make the break for freedom, was it, is it right to say that he was given clandestine reading lessons and writing lessons to other people who were on the slave plantation? Yeah, he would have been. Yeah, he basically ran his own Sunday school. He had a book uh, called The Columbian Orator, which um, sounds deadly dull. Now, it's a collection, a kind of a compendium of speeches from great figures like uh, Washington and, uh, and um, Julius Caesar. <clears throat> but it also had a kind of a, how, a how-to guide. It was kind of a, a how-to guide for oratory and elocution. elocution. And so he, he got that with 50 cent that he earned, shine, Shining Shoes in Baltimore. He read it over and over again. He brought it with him from Baltimore to the Eastern Shore. It was always with him. He brought it with him when he went north. Um, he brought it with him when he came to Ireland. It was always with him. In fact, there was actually a speech on Catholic emancipation in that book. So even at this young age... When he's first reading it as a teenager, Ireland and some of the Irish issues would have, you know, he would have been somewhat aware of them through that book. And um, the book, it was said to be like the second most popular book in America after the Bible, um, for whatever reason. It's, um, yeah, a strange one. Is there still a few of them knocking around? They're easily found, easily found. <laughs> so, where were we at then? He, we were just about to kind of. You were just about to start talking about how he how he escaped on the on the train, I think. Yeah, so it wasn't the most dramatic of escapes. Um, a contemporary of his, Henry Box Brown, literally mailed himself north. Um, other people <clears throat> would have been chased by dogs and slave catchers. Frederick took advantage of the opening of the railroads. A new railroad was linking Baltimore um, up, up up towards New York and. The owners of the train said that they would make, you know, real serious effort to make sure no slaves got on that train. But not all black people in Baltimore were slaves. There was also a kind of a free black community. So there's kind of a grey area there. Baltimore was seen at the time as America's black capital. It was kind of a melting pot of slaves, hired out slaves, free free blacks. So what Frederick got was essentially forged documents. He got a a black seaman's papers and um, he used those. To, to, to board a plane and to get through the plane. When the conductor came into the black carriage, uh, this conductor is meant to be kind of, you know, very rigorous about inspecting the um, documents of the, of the black people in the, in the carriages. But um, Frederick describes how he just seemed to not like being in there and just kind of you know, got, got through the carriage nice and quickly. Um, and so that, that was the Frederick's spot of, uh, spot of luck. Um, there was a few hairy moments along the way, like at one point, 
his train stopped at a station and a train going the other way stopped opposite it. And in the window beside him on this other train were people who knew his owner. And so he was worried that, you know, if they saw him, you know, that would be done. So he just kind of, you know, looked down at the floor a bit. So, um, so it was, he was full of trepidation, but it wasn't particularly dramatic. Yeah. You wouldn't really make a film about his, his escape, but um, it doesn't matter. It worked. He got to New York and from there he went up to New Bedford in Massachusetts. If stepping off that train in New York would have been like stepping into a completely different world for him, I take it because he was now no longer say attached to his owner. Mm-hmm which is good but on the other hand it must have been a very challenging time to try and kind of start with the, like where do you go from there well he luckily he had he had some knowledge and so he went to the home of a black minister who was kind of a key new york underground railroad figure and also in baltimore he had um fell in love with a woman a free black woman called anna murray and so she was able to follow him up to new york they met in New York. So he's only there for two two days or so. They met, they married quickly at the home of this um, reverend or minister, David Ruggles, and then they went up together to New Bedford, Massachusetts. Would that have been an advantage to him, the fact that he was married to a free woman at the time? <clears throat> Not really an advantage, I don't think. Not a disadvantage. It's just kind of, um, I don't think it was, uh, it was, it made it easy that, you know, two of them didn't have to escape. Uh, it made it a bit easier because she had had some money that she, you know, it was her money that bought Frederick his kind of his sailor's costume. So she, you know, in many ways financed his escape. But I wouldn't say it made it easier. Um, I don't think it had much difference either way on, you know, like uh, on, you know, uh, when they got north on the people that they met, you um, would have been seen as kind of, um, you know, on the same level. Even though Frederick Douglass was a slave and his wife was a free woman. I'm sure they, she would have been experiencing wholesale racism at the time as well in America. Yeah, yeah, and and up north as well. It's like you have to remember that the north, although it's free of slavery, it wasn't free of racism. So, um, you know, some cities were better than others, some states were better than others. But Frederick would give, um, you know, would be abused on the streets. Uh, his wife would be abused on the streets. Sometimes, in Frederick's giving speeches kind of racist mobs would break up the speeches, they'd attack him, he's had his hand broken, he had, you know, he's hit with with uh with with, with sticks. He was um, you know, went through lots of uh, difficult periods up in the north. But um you know, when he's traveling trains, he would only be allowed in certain carriages. If he refused that, he was like ripped off trains. He was, you know, only allowed in certain cl- in certain um, you know, public houses, certain buildings, um, certain churches. There was you know, like there was still a lot of barriers, um, but he and Anna did find a way to live a happy life those first few years in uh, up in Massachusetts. Did Frederick Douglass jump straight into the movement for the abolition of slavery straight away as soon as he landed off the train? <clears throat> no, no, he takes a he takes a couple of years to just kind of breathe and gather his thoughts and uh, try to set himself up. So the first thing, one of the first things he does is, is change his name. He finds he finds his name, the name Douglas, in a book by Walter Scott called The Lady of the Lake. Um, it was just suggested to him by 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 someone that 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 that, that he stated. Um, his first few years, he's just kind of um, working as a general labourer, working in the docks, carrying coal around the place. He and Anna get a small house. They raise a family. They have three young children quite quickly, and um, it's kind of. 
it's kind of calm and settling for a while. It's you know, it's a struggle. You know, you're going to be short of money and there's going to be issues, but it was um relatively calm. But after a few years of this, you know, his slave past, it just it keeps kind of, you know, hovering over him, coming over him. He can't quite shake it off. It's in his dreams. So then he starts to get the Liberator newspaper, which was the newspaper of the main abolitionist group. He starts to go to their meeting, kind of hangs back a bit at the start, then starts making speeches. And very quickly they realize, you know, this guy is a presence. This guy has a story to tell. And um, so he becomes a paid lecturer, kind of a traveling lecturer. And he spends kind of 1841 to 1845 just crisscrossing the northern states of America, just like on a like you're a politician on a tour, on a campaign trail. He's just up, down, round, um, giving speeches in churches and town halls, street corners, and uh, just uh, yeah, just talking and traveling and um, spreading the anti-slavery message and just trying to make it stronger. So then how did it come about that people started to question whether or not he had ever been a slave in the first place? Just because he was so eloquent, so powerful, so intelligent, so well-spoken, um, most of the anti-slavery speakers at this time would have been free blacks who had been born and raised in the North or they would have been white abolitionists. Um, Frederick was kind of set apart. He was on a different plane. It was said that, you know, like he had the, um, you know, the marks of slavery on his back. He carried his diploma on his back. Is It was, well, one person phrased it. In fact, he was so um, together, so well-spoken. In fact, some abolitionists said that he should keep a bit of the plantation in him. And, you know, no, he wasn't going to play that game. He was, you know, strong, tall, determined. He's going to tell a story, tell it his way, and um, not play a role, no matter how it suited um, certain certain factions. But that's when people thought that, you know, like no slave could ever speak like this. No slave could ever carry themselves with this presence, this power. And um, so, yeah, that's when he, he thought that, if he was to continue to be of value to the movement, he had to get rid of all those questions. And the way to get rid of all those questions was to publish his autobiography and lay it all out. Was it well received when he, when that was published? Yeah, it made a huge, um, huge impression across the North. Um, like I said, it wasn't the first, it's just, you're so <clears throat> brilliant, so brutal, so honest, so descriptive that it just, you know, even people who, even people who knew the story or, or, you know, like who would have been that way inclined, they were still kind of shocked and shaken by what he described, the events, the, the murders, the killings that he described and the plantation is, um, you know, the, the, the times when he was whipped himself. Um, so it got a huge amount of attention in the North. That attention creeps down to the South where it gets a, a huge amount of abuse in the South. And, um, you know, people jump to this to, to the defense of his of his owners um you know saying you know like these are these are great people uh, they go to church every sunday fine methodists class leaders you know like this is a uh, disgraceful um and so yeah but so the the reactions are extreme on both ends and um and not just in america very quickly there was like a french edition published uh quite quickly i think at one point it even got into a swedish language edition it, you know like it it, it did um, as much as the book could at the time, grabbed the attention of the world. How did it end up then that he left America and came to Ireland? Yeah, so it's getting such his book is getting such such attention that there's rumours that um you know his owner was going to try and recapture him and be taken down south, t- taken back to the south. 
So the leaders of the American Anti-Slavery Society, they decide he needs to get out of the country. And this is, it was quite a regular thing that abolitionists in America would go and lecture in Britain and Ireland. So Frederick was just one in a line of, of maybe not many, but of quite a few. And um, so he, got, he travels over with the broad intention of maybe staying for a few months and just um, you know, wait until things die down in America. Well, you know, simultaneously just raising more uh, attention for the cause in, in Great Britain and Ireland. Because at, the, at this point, you know, Americans, Americans in the South, they still, even though they'd obviously won independence from Britain, it still had a large you know, role in their psyche. And um, it was seen that, you know, like British public opinion could sway certain decisions in America. So that was why um, kind of the, the, the abolitionists on both sides of the Atlantic were all just kind of working together. So Frederick was sent over to do a, you know, to raise public opinion, to raise awareness, to, uh, to tell a story. And the reason he came to Ireland first was because there was a Quaker printer in Dublin called Richard Davis Webb, who had been a long-time anti-slavery activist and who was well-known to William Lloyd Garrison, the head of the American Anti-Slavery Society. So it would serve a double purpose that, you know, like he'd go somewhere safe, someone who had been a long-term activist and someone who was a printer and would um, start publishing new editions of Frederick's book and start selling them across Ireland and Britain. He arrived to Ireland in 1845, which is the first year of the famine. So Ireland must have been a fairly unstable country to be landing into. Yeah, I mean, at the time, you don't know it's a famine. It's just a start. It's just a it's just a food shortage. In fact, on the um, on the day that he arrives, I was reading some of the newspapers and they're they're saying how how great the harvest is looking, you know. But then within a month, the you know like the reports are like eh, not so good. But even then, there would be concern, there would be apprehension. But Ireland was relatively used to periodic food shortages so it would have been seen as you know something bad but not disastrous but there was just a general um deep poverty regardless of the famine there was deep deep seated poverty both in both the city and the country and frederick was um struck by that as soon as he landed and he wrote back to america describing some of the scenes he saw on the dublin streets um which i could uh, maybe read a passage if you're that way inclined that'd be great the streets were alive with beggars displaying the greatest wretchedness. Some of them mere stumps of men, without feet, without legs, without hands, without arms. And others still more horribly deformed, with crooked limbs down upon their hands and knees, their feet lapped around each other and laid upon their backs, pressing their way through the muddy streets and merciless crowd, casting sad looks to the right and left in the hope of catching the eye of a passing stranger. I've had more than a dozen around me at one time, men, women, children, all telling a tale of woe which would move any but a heart of iron. Women, barefooted and bareheaded, and only covered by rags which seemed to be held together by the very dirt and filth with which they were covered. Many of these had infants in their arms, whose emaciated forms, sunken eyes and pallid cheeks, told too plainly that they had nursed till they had nursed in vain. In such a group, you may hear all form of appeal, entreaty and expostulation, a half a dozen voices have broken upon my ear at once. Will your honour please to give me a penny to buy some bread? May the Lord bless you. Give the poor old woman a little sixpence. For the love of God, leave us a few pennies. We'll divide them amongst us. And um, and it goes on for quite a while. It's um, uh, but there you get a sense of his, uh, you know, like the power of his writing, the evocativeness that he that he that the evocative scenes that he can create. He um, wrote similarly about 
his walks in the countryside and seeing kind of the, the rural poverty and that element of it. And then he said that an Irish hut, hut was the preeminent place in the world to observe human misery, ignorance, degradation, filth and wretchedness, which is quite something coming from a man who was a slave and had seen the worst of conditions on slave plantations. I remember reading somewhere that he also made a comparison between the the tone and the emotion of the songs that he heard in Ireland to the songs that were being sung on the slave plantations as well. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I'm not a musicologist, but um, I think it doesn't take that to to get a sense to hear that even if the words and the <clears throat> the topics are seem different and are separated by an ocean and separated by thousands of miles and maybe sometimes separated by many years. It does um, you can you can hear senses of longing, failure, hunger, sorrow that um, you know like interplay between those two sets of songs and music. Would it have been very unusual for people in Ireland and I suppose England to a lesser degree to see a black person walking around the streets back then? It would be unusual, but maybe not as unusual as we would think. Um, Dublin, although, you know, proportions are all relative, Dublin was seen to have had one of the, you know, like largest black populations in Europe per per population. Um, A lot of this had to do with it being a port city. Lots of port cities were just, um, saw more black people. Uh, there was just uh, a lot of black sailors um, on various on various um, boats. Uh, um, so th- that's that's one thing. Places like Bristol, Dublin, Glasgow. Um, there's also occasional black performers, singers uh, would have been on stage. Other black uh, anti-slavery speakers had been in Dublin. Kind of every couple of years, one you know someone seemed to show up. So um, it was unusual, but not outlandishly unusual and have, even, um, there's some reports from even there further on the back in the 1700s and there's descriptions of wedding parties and uh, black men dancing with white women at wedding parties and there's no hint of you know something being wrong about that whereas in america that would have been you know absolutely you know uh, horrible and horrified and you know like uh, outrageous would he have had a schedule of talks around the country that he was going around and uh, to different places? A schedule that kind of um, grew um, exponentially. He came over, I think he was just going to come over for four days. So he landed in Liverpool first, spent the night there and then came over to Dublin. It was meant to be a quick, you know, quick stay a little bit and then back over to England, which is going to be the, the focus of the tour. But once he started giving his speeches in Dublin, First of all, at small venues like the Quaker Meeting House, his words, the reports of his speeches, the reports of how he carried himself, they, you know, attention grew, interest grew. So he was soon speaking in um, the music hall in Lower Abbey Street, which held 3,000 people. And that's the, um, the Abbey Theatre now. So he spoke there every Wednesday for like three weeks in a row. And every Wednesday it was full. So just the guts of 10,000 people going to watch, going to see him. And, you know, these were big affairs, long affairs. This is two hours of intense talk, intense discussion, because it's important to remember that these talks, they weren't just about enlightenment and education. They were about entertainment as well. A lot of people went to these talks to be entertained and he was an entertainer. He knew that there was a kind of a voyeuristic element in some of this. So 
he would always, you know, like he not all he'd often have, you know, like um, follow descriptions of, say, his cousin being whipped, and then he'd bring out these shackles and manacles that he'd carried with him across the Atlantic, and you know, like shake them and rattle them, and then the newspapers full of your know, crowds gasps, ladies faint, and all of that sort of um, carry on. He was also a good mimic, and he could mix in some humor. Um, he'd often talk about these southern ministers who, <clears throat> down in the south, would kind of um open up their palms and intone to the black pews uh, at the distance, how um, in the manner of a minister addressing the black pews and told, and you too, my friends of souls of infinite value, souls that will live through endless happiness or misery in eternity. Oh, labor diligently to make your calling and election sure or receive unto your souls these words of the holy apostle, servants, be obedient unto your masters. So he had bits of humor, he had bits of mimicry, he had bits of kind of, you know, shock tactics. And he also, you know, made his point across that it was about raising public opinion on this side of the Atlantic because Americans, despite their independence, still felt kind of cowed by the British Isles and Britain and that they were, you know, like they could be, opinion could be swayed by that. So would, would people have been pen into these talks or would they, would they be free? There was a mix. Uh, at the start, a lot of them were free. But those bigger ones, they would have been, they would have paid into, and you know, not insignificant amounts, you know, five pence or something, which sounds like nothing, but you know, like it wouldn't have been, it would, have, it would have been something. It would have been something you'd think about. You'd have to think about paying for it. And so, would that money be going to Frederick Douglass or into the movement, or a lot of that money would have gone to kind of into the movement. His money he made from selling the books, and. At one point, I think by the end of, after he's been here for four months, I think he had earned about 750, I, I need to, I did check, was it dollars or pounds? But um, his book sold well. His book sold very well. And by the time he's ending his journey up in Belfast, he's feeling kind of well enough and comfortable enough that he buys a really fancy watch. And, um, you know, he wore that for the rest of his life. Um, so he would have had to send money back home, back to um, Anna. And uh, I think there was four children by the time he left. So... He had been wary at the start, but the book sold so well that that, you know, made life a bit easier. And where did the connection with Daniel O'Connell come in along the trip? Well, Douglas had been aware of the existence of Ireland from a few different facets. There was that book that he read and that had a speech about Catholic emancipation in it. Working on the docks in Baltimore, he would have met Irish people. They would have, you know, told him bits about the country how he first came across O'Connell was, uh, well, we know O'Connell as a uh, you know, Catholic emancipation and repeal. O'Connell was also one of the great anti-slavery um, leaders of the 19th century. And Douglas has described how he heard O'Connell's name in the curses of his masters and knew he was a friend of the cause. So the name is there. And then when he's in the north and he's traveling around, he's with another um, lecturer called Charles Lennox Ramond. And Lennox Ramond had also been a few years earlier, traveling and lecturing in Britain and Ireland. He had met O'Connell and he'd spoken to O'Connell and seen O'Connell speak. So Ramond would have been telling Douglas, you know, like, you know, if you're going to Ireland, you know, look out for this guy. And so Douglas came across a meeting of the Repeal Association at Conciliation Hall in Dublin. And he went to this, to, to, to watch the, to watch O'Connell speak. And wouldn't you know it, O'Connell is speaking on slavery, even though he doesn't know that Douglas is there, because uh, O'Connell had just been getting some abuse from, um, 
Irish appealers in America saying, listen, stop talking about slavery. It's costing us money, basically. Um, it's giving us, it's giving the Repeal Association, the Repeal Movement a bad name. And O'Connell wasn't one to be told what to do. So he's doubled down and, you know, talk more about slavery. And um, then it's made known to him, I think, through O'Connell's son, John, kind of knows that, um, you know, Douglas is in the audience. So they bring him forward, they get him up on stage. So the two men kind of share a moment together. And uh, O'Connell, who is full of ego, introduces him to the crowd as the black O'Connell of the United States of America. Because in his head, that's what America needed, was you and O'Connell. And do you think that uh, Frederick Douglass came to Ireland on sort of this mission of spreading the message of the abolition of slavery? Is there any element of his trip where he sort of took on the cause of Irish liberation or understood more about what was happening in Ireland? Not really. It seems to have been a bit of a, well, I don't know if a blind spot is the right word. He was, he was an Anglophile. He loved Dickens. He loved Lord Byron. He loved that Britain had abolished slavery in 1833. He always saw that as a huge thing. And it was something that American abolitionists could always refer to. So in his mind, Britain could do no wrong, really. Plus, he was largely with, you know, Quakers and Unitarians. He wasn't really, he didn't really stay with um, Irish Catholics. His kind of the social circles that he was around in Ireland weren't hugely nationalistic. Um, So he never spoke particularly strongly about kind of, you know, he never kind of linked Irish misery and penury with British rule. Um, very later on, he would have spoken a little bit in favour of home rule, like in the 1870s and 1880s, but at this time, no. And I, part of it might be tactical because he knew he was going to England afterwards, but part of it, I think, is that um, he, didn't, he didn't put them together. Um, Britain could do no wrong, really, in his mind. So um, Irish problems were something else, you know, like he'd, you know, to, you know Alcohol was Ireland's problem, not British rule. Um, he took a lot, you know, he spent a lot of time with temperance activists. Um, and that would have been kind of, you know, one of their kind of main arguments. So, um, yeah, he's kind of fell more on that side of the, of the question. Is it possible that he was, like you say, <clears throat> kind of, that it was partly tactical and that he was spending his, most of his time with sort of members of various different types of Protestant denomination and mm. they were the people that he wanted to influence so that they could therefore use their influence for the, for the abolition of slavery. It could be, he, he did want that. That was a big part. He wanted to kind of, um, the Irish and English Methodists, Baptist Presbyterians, he wanted them to kind of ostracize their American co-religionists. So that wasn't it. But I think mostly it's that he just didn't see it. He just didn't put the two together. Here, this is a bit of a backtrack in the conversation now, but I wanted to ask you about the journey that he took from America to Ireland because you just hear so much about those voyages and a lot of the time the ship's not making it and it was it used to take a couple of weeks to get there. What do we know about the journey that he made from America to, I guess, Liverpool first? Yeah, well, it, um, it started badly because he thought he was getting a first-class ticket and he had the money for a first-class ticket because um, there had been a bit of fundraising done for him and he was told, no, no, you're traveling in steerage or you're not traveling at all. Because this was, um, the ship was called the Cambria. It was part of the Cunard Line, which is a British company. But they were happy to cow to, the, um, to their southern passengers who didn't want a black man in the, in, in the first-class saloons. So Douglas 
would normally kick back against this sort of uh, thing, but I think he just wanted to get out of America so much he kind of he took the hit and swallowed his pride and you know traveled in steerage. He traveled actually with a white abolitionist called James Buffum and interestingly a a popular musical family called the Hutchison Family Singers who were um, a white musical group, lots of harmonies. They were um, usually popular at the time, three brothers and a sister. And they had been planning a, they would off, they were deeply involved in the abolitionist movement as well. And they would have often sung songs before Frederick's speeches. So when they heard that Frederick was going, they kind of made a spur of the moment decision to say, well, we'll go too. So there's this kind of motley crew going over there. So Douglas and James Buffum are in steerage. The Hutchinsons are in their first class saloons, but they are able to sweet talk the captain. They get, you know, they get Douglas a degree of freedom on the, on the boat. He's able to move around, meet and greet, talk to people. Lots of people are really interested in him. They kind of, you know, just whispers, they know about him, they kind of know about the book. But there's also lots of people who are just, you know, they despise seeing him there. Eventually, some passengers ask the captain to let Douglas, you know, make a speech. And so he does on the last day of the voyage. So he's already seen the kind of the coast of Kerry. Now they're kind of, they're heading down Waterford Way and, and, and turning up on the last night. And Frederick starts to make the speech, but um, slave supporters, slave owners from Cuba, from Mississippi, from the South, they just start heckling and shouting and, you know, like, you know, get, you know just, just making, a, you know, making it impossible for Douglas to speak. At the same time, there's um, British and Irish passengers who were like eager to hear him speak. Uh, Douglas has often remembered a, a reference to an Irish soldier called Thomas Goff, who, um, you know, was six foot something tall and, you know, like, uh, you know, like put his chest out and told the, uh, the, 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 the pro-safety people to, you know, like, um, you know, it, it won't be him overboard, it'll be you overboard if you don't stop. Eventually, the captain comes and settles it all. He threatens to put the kind of the hecklers in chains and they kind of skulk off to their rooms. But by this stage, Douglas, he'd had enough. Somewhere in the middle of the melee, he'd kind of just melted away back into his room and, um, you know, he let that go. So, but yeah, so that's an interesting journey over. And um, but what the pro-slavery people did then, once they got to Liverpool, they wrote loads of letters, you know, condemning the Cunard line and um, for letting this uh, man speak. And but all they did was give more attention, more publicity to Douglas. So they they helped set him up for this great big uh, successful tour that that he ended up having. He's uh, about a month or five weeks in Dublin. Then he went down through Wexford and Waterford. Uh, to Cork, had a very important uh, month in Cork because at the start, all of his tours, all of his talks was organised by this Quaker, Webb, and he stayed at Webb, and then he was in Wexford, he stayed with uh, members of the Webb family when he was in Waterford, he stayed with members of the Poole family who were like connected to the Webb family. It was in Cork that he kind of separated from that element from the from the Quakers stayed at another family and kind of started to take charge of his tour himself started to organize it more himself um uh, so that was that was you know very important for him uh then he went up to Limerick for another couple of weeks in November and then up to Belfast for near basically all of December what was his, his experience like in Cork his, he loved his time in Cork he uh, loved the family that he stayed with they were a Unitarian family called the Jenningses. They were um they were kind of into every social movement that was going. They were into every artistic development that was happening, every literary, scientific, you know, thing that was going on. They wrote poems, they wrote economics papers, they were just, you know, they spoke and talked and uh, were interested in everything. Um Douglas found them extremely vivid company. 
whether it's fair or not, he had always found Webb to be quite a staid figure. Also, Webb was very was really close to um, Garrison and the American Anti-Slavery Society. And there was kind of um, a sense that Webb was kind of watching him for them. Whereas when he's with this other family, the Jenningses, he's kind of, he had, you know, he, was, he, had, he had a bit more freedom. Um, people weren't, you know, reporting back to him, to, to Boston as such. Is it, where, did, where did he talk when he was in Cork? In Cork, he spoke, um, he spoke in a, I think... His first speech was a short kind of meet and greet with kind of the city elite. It was in a place called Lloyd's Hotel, which was on the Grand Parade side of Oliver Plunkett Street, which is now Georgia Street. If you know Cork, it's basically the side entrance to Casey's is 65 Oliver Plunkett Street. And so that was Lloyd's Hotel. That's where he spoke first. He then was in the courthouse. And this was kind of his first real big introduction to the city. This was This place was thronged. Um, full of, you know, the working classes, full of Catholics. This is where he made a big speech, you know, like he really bigs up O'Connell in this uh, in this audience and gets lots of cheers. He spoke next in the Wesleyan church or chapel, which is kind of where Gentleman's Quarters is now, uh, just off Patrick Street. And you can still see some nice windows, although it's no longer church. You, you can, if you go down Bowling Green Lane, there's still some really nice windows from the from the Wesleyan Chapel. So uh, he spoke there. Um, some of the places that he spoke no longer exist. There was a, um, a Globe Lane Temperance Hall that doesn't exist anymore. Um, there's a place called St. Patrick's Temperance Hall, which I'm not quite sure where it is. He spoke at the Temperance Institute on Academy Street, which is now um, the Yumi Falafel Shop. And um, a few, where was, um, probably at one or two more locations, but that's what I can think of offhand. And so are they all kind of, what is that temperance? Is that like kind of a Protestant thing? Uh, temperance is uh, giving up alcohol. Uh, oh. teetotal, the, teetotal, the teetotaler society, you know, the, the teetotal abstinence society. So it was a big deal in the 1830s, 1840s. And um, Douglas actually met Father Matthew, who was known as the Apostle of Temperance. He met him in Cork. And Father Matthew introduced him at one of the speeches and then had him for breakfast in his house the next day, which is just in Cove Street, which is really close to the, um, you know, near the key co-op. So um, Douglas had a really impressive breakfast with Father Matthew. is very impressive. And Douglas was a teetotaler himself and had been for seven or eight years, but he still felt the need in the presence of Matthew to you know, kneel down before him and take the temperance pledge and get the little silver badge. Um, Douglas had drunk a lot in his late teenage years, but he had seen how slave owners, say on Christmas or Easter, when there was a, <clears throat> a bit less of work to do, the slave owners would kind of... So, supplied or slaves with lots of alcohol just kind of to dull their minds so that they're not thinking of escape during these kind of you know like brief episodes periods in the year where it was you know a bit less work so he saw that alcohol was used to keep the slaves down and he thought that you know freeing yourself from alcohol was a step to freeing your mind and that was a step to actual physical freedom and escape so he he was a committed you know temperance advocate as well for um you know most if not all of his life what is the re- the relevance of this for for today? Well, it seems that issues of equality and justice are never out of date. And Douglas, because of his kind of lived experience as a slave, because of his um his skills at words, his his language, he was able to craft messages that still resonate, that people still take inspiration from. 
it's like um, his name has become insinuated kind of into the popular consciousness and um, you, whether you, you know, like, um, whether you agree with his stances on things or disagree, he kind of still manages to bring out big reactions in people. Um, what's interesting, he's also, he was never afraid to challenge people. And that's, um, that's something that, you know, that's good to remember now when, you know, like we're all in bubbles talking to each other. He would go out of the bubble. He would, you know, go look for trouble, go to challenge people, try and change minds. And it's a difficult thing to change minds. And so there's one, you know, quite interesting story in 2018, which was the bicentenary of his birth, a group of statues were made about him or put up a group of uh, Douglas statues were put up in Rochester, New York by, um, by the city leaders just to, to commemorate him. And a couple of students got drunk one night and vandalized one, ripped it down and, you know, took it for a walk. And they were caught and they were, um, you know, uh, found guilty of criminal damage. They didn't serve jail. They did a restorative justice program with a Frederick Douglass um, run institute. And it turned out it wasn't just a box ticking exercise. It really impacted them. And so to fast forward two years to 2020, when there was all this debate about um, Confederate generals and their statues being taken down, some people, different people, went and attacked these Frederick Douglass statues in Rochester. And these two guys who had attacked them and vandalized them in 2018, they were the first to offer to help to redo and rebuild and you know, put back these Frederick Douglass statues. So um, he still manages to influence people, impact people. And um, that's why Douglas Week is relevant. And uh, it's why Cork as a city should be proud of its connection with Douglas and continue to you know, promulgate that connection with Douglas. Just a quick shout out to some of the people who've worked on Douglas Week. Um, Caroline Schroeder, um, Tim Groenland, um, Sarah McCready, Kirsten Leary. Does, um, this was meant to happen last year in UCC with you know, actual real life physical people. Um, so what's happening now, it's kind of impressive that they, they weren't kind of knocked back by it being you know, knocked out by COVID. They've taken it, made it grow, made it bigger. Um, it's all online. It's all free. It's got people, actors, uh, performers, academics from all over America, Britain and Ireland uh, participating. And um, yeah, they've uh, done a two-year solid work to make this happen. So I'm hoping it'll be a huge success for them. It's really great to be able to be a part of it as well. One of the best things I feel about the Rebel, Rebel Matters podcast is that it's such a wide variety of topics that we're discussing uh, from episode to episode. And a lot of the time, an episode might just open a door into an area that you haven't really heard much about before. And then it just kind of sends you down the rabbit hole of learning more about it. So thanks very much for sharing all of your uh, knowledge and information and stories with us. <laughs> no worries, Anley. Thanks for, thanks for having me. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anne Carlan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is 100% funded by our followers over on Patreon and we are very grateful for that support. If you'd like to become a patron, then you can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters where you can see the various tiers of support that you can choose from. Every single bit of support that we get here at the Rebel Matters podcast means a lot to us and really does help to keep the show on the road. Anyway, that's all for me this week. So, Gajian Kedarella, Akarja, Slan Gafoil, August Kenny Fiore.